You turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. And then while you're turning there, I have two questions for you, just a quick thought experiment, might self-destruct. But what comes to your mind when you think of rest? What comes to your mind when you think of rest? Some people think of relaxing on a beach or a lake, perhaps Memorial Day weekend. Some people think of maybe working in their shed or playing a musical instrument, listening to music. Some people think of watching a movie. Some people think of vacation. Some people think of a nice, long, uninterrupted nap. The uninterrupted is important. I've learned the last five years. Some people maybe just think of uh, a room that's cooler than 80 degrees. What comes in your mind when you think of rest? Rest is a huge part of our lives. Um, we, we, we plan our schedules around rest. We, we're dependent on rest. We need rest. We struggle with rest, Uh, we get too much rest, we don't get enough rest. Finding the work-rest balance requires uh, the wisdom of God, it seems. Seems like it's always too much one way or the other, But, but rest is a huge theme of our lives. So that's question one, what comes to your mind when you think of rest? Question two, What comes to your mind when you think of Sabbath? The word Sabbath. Maybe you think of the fourth commandment. Uh, Maybe you think of uh, strict rules or something like that. Uh, Sabbath and rest are are two themes in Scripture that uh, we find all the way from beginning to end, and they're, uh, they're integrally connected, rest and, and Sabbath. And in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we get them where we find those two things wrapped together about as tightly as uh, we can find. So let's take a look at Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For as he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest 
for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us strive, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your words. These are the words of life. You have not hidden yourself from us. You have revealed yourself to us. What a gift it is for fallen creatures in a fallen world, confused, broken, perplexed, struggling and suffering. What a gift that you have not kept yourself from us, but you have revealed yourself to us in a way that's been preserved and in a way that is clear, in a way that we can have specific, definite meaning in our minds regarding who you are and how you have chosen to relate to us. God, this time will be worthless apart from your spirit awakening in us a desire to know you and hear from you. So we ask that by your grace and through your spirit that would be possible. We ask that you would do that for us for the sake of your great name and for the sake of our joy, which we'll only have if you'll grant it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, so one goal for this sermon will be to hopefully get a better understanding of how to take the Sabbath seriously. That wasn't part of the sermon. <laughs> there we go. One of the goals this morning is hopefully that we can get a better grasp of what it means to take the Sabbath seriously. Because that's, I, I think if, you, if you're honest, I mean, if I'm honest, I, that's a little bit perplexing to me. I remember having the Ten Commandments hanging in my room as a kid and uh, feeling pretty good about them. Haven't murdered anyone lately. The Sabbath, though, honoring the Sabbath, remembering the Sabbath, keeping it holy. Hopefully, maybe not complete, but hopefully a better grasp of what it means to take the Sabbath seriously as New Testament believers. If we're going to take the Sabbath seriously, looking at Hebrews 4, there's at least three things we need to do. We need to fear the forsaking of God's rest. We need to recognize the continual significance of God's rest, and we need to strive for the complete entering of God's rest. So we have something to fear, something to recognize, and something to strive for. And we'll start on a positive note. We need to fear. The, the author of Hebrews tells us, uh, to fear, or tells the original audience and uh, us as uh, distant readers and recipients of this 
this letter, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear. As Christians, we ought to fear, which might sound odd. Uh, Doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out all fear? So there's a kind of fearing, though, that we're we're being called to here. Why do we need to fear? What what are the grounds for uh, this fear? What what are the reasons we need to fear? there's, There's two reasons here. First of all, not everyone enters God's rest. We ought to fear because not everyone gets to enter God's rest. Example number one, Israelites rescued from Egypt in the wilderness. Uh, The author of Hebrews uh, has been referencing them uh, earlier uh, in chapter three and his uh, argument using them comes through here into chapter four. Uh, We're looking back at uh, God's people rescued from Egypt in the wilderness and they did not enter God's rest. They received good news it says, the, they, uh, the message they heard had the capability of benefiting them. Verse, verse 2, if you look there. But in spite of good news received and benefits offered, they did not receive God's rest. They did not enter into God's rest. And the author of Hebrews is drawing a line from Old Testament Israel to New Testament Christians. So in We share a similar position. We have received good news much more clearly than than they did. We have now uh, beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we have the, the complete picture of what the good news is. We've received good news, and the message we have heard has the capability of benefiting us. And according to the author of Hebrews, a fear of failing to reach God's rest is a means by which God actually gets us into his rest. A a fear of failing to reach God's rest is one of the means God uses in order to get us into his rest. So we ought to fear, first of all, because not everyone enters God's rest. Secondly, we need to fear, we ought to fear because you can mistakenly believe you've reached God's rest. You can, mis- you can mistakenly believe it because you, you can make the mistake of thinking, because I've heard the gospel, I will enter God's rest. But look at verse 2. But the message they heard did not benefit them. So association with God's people, hearing sermons about God, participating in the activities of the people of God, even witnessing great acts of God does not mean we reach God's rest, does not mean we get to enter God's rest. And the author of Hebrews is calling Christians to a kind of healthy fear here. Fear because the stakes are very high. If we fail to enter God's rest, we will enter God's judgment. The stakes, the stakes are high. And fear because it's possible to hear the good news of Christianity, but actually not receive its, its benefits. We don't want to be just people who hear about benefits. We want to receive the benefits. And so one of the things the author Hughes tells us to do is, is to, he calls us to a, a kind of healthy amount of fear. So what does that fear look like? Does it, does it look like a debilitating worry, uh, unending anxiousness? Just constant introspection or constant focus on 
the worst possible circumstances. I think the author of Hebrews has, has something more constructive uh, in mind when, he's, when he says fear. Uh, the, the fear he talks about, it, it, seems to be, it seems to indicate that this is a kind of fear that leads to faith. Look at verse 2. The Old Testament Israelites did not benefit from the message of good news because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And then look in verse 3. In contrast to those who didn't receive it by faith, he says, for we who have believed enter God's rest. The word faith in verse 2 and the word believed in verse 3, they share the same root word in the original language. The word faith and belief in the New Testament, uh, for the most part, are virtually interchangeable. Faith and belief. And the kind of fear he's calling us to here is a kind of fear that doesn't just sit in fear, but it's a kind of fear that leads us to faith and belief in God and what God has said and what God has revealed. So, so the goal of the fear we're called to in verse 1 leads us to the faith and belief we see in verses 2 and 3. So this is a healthy, constructive fear. Uh, people People a lot of times ask, and I was just asked recently, are you, are you afraid of heights? And um, that's a, I'm sure you, everyone has been asked that one time at least. Are you afraid of heights? I'm, I'm never quite sure how to answer that question. Um, I don't think I'm, a, maybe it's just because I'm not afraid of heights. Um, I'm not afraid of heights. What I'm afraid of is falling from heights, right? I mean, is that what people mean? Are you afraid of falling? But that is kind of a worthless question. Are you afraid of falling? Everyone's afraid of falling. I mean, the most optimistic person in the world is, uh, has some degree of fear uh, at the moment of falling. I think what people mean when they ask that question is when you get into high places uh, and you, and, uh, you sense danger, do you freeze and do you become just... Immobile. I mean, are you, uh, are you, do you just become completely debilitated? Because I, I, you know, I know that that happens. I think that's what people are getting at. Because there's a kind of fear that leads to debilitation and you just can't move. And there's also a kind of fear, though, that leads to action. So on Friday, when I'm uh, on top of this dam that's uh, holding back this, this water reservoir and looking over the side and it's about 40 feet down, um, I'm not afraid in the sense that I can't move, but there's a kind of fear that leads me to, you know, grab the railing and kind of get my feet, make sure I kind of, you know, you look over the edge and that's a long ways down. You just, it's a fear that kind of leads you to take some steps of action because you're, you're concerned about the, the consequences, I think that's the kind of fear the author of Hebrews is getting at here. A healthy, constructive fear. A fear that leads you not to underestimate the consequences of, if you're standing somewhere where you could fall, falling over the edge. Or a fear that leads you to not underestimate, in the case of uh, what we're looking at in Hebrews, a fear that leads you to not underestimate the consequences of a hard, unbelieving heart. The consequences of a hard, unbelieving heart do not lead to God's rest. And a healthy kind of fear will make sure we, we take seriously the, the, the consequences. So in order to take God's rest seriously, we must not only accept uh, a healthy fear 
of forsaking God's rest, of not taking it seriously, but we also have to recognize the continual significance of God's rest. So this is looking at verses 3 through 10. And in order to get a good handle on verses 3 through 10, um, it's, it's really helpful just to recognize the Bible is a, is a progressive, progressive revelation. So the Bible doesn't just drop out of the sky one day, fully complete and ready to be dissected. Uh, actually, one of the glorious things about the Bible is that uh, it's, it's a progressively revealed document. So God is being, he's revealing himself through uh, the inscripturated word. He, he's he's uh, inspiring people through the Holy Spirit to write down what he wants written down, but not all at one time. It's multiple people throughout multiple years and, and generations. And, and the interesting dynamic there is that you've got people writing scripture who have read previous scripture. So they're writing scripture in light of previous scripture that's already been, already been read. And uh, so uh, b- biblical authors start to take themes that, are, that have been revealed earlier and language that has been articulated earlier and work it into their own writings. And it gets about as complex as it gets here in Hebrews 4. There's f- about four layers that you have to have straightened out in order for this to make any sense. So just to try to simplify those layers quickly as we look at verses 3 through 10, layer 1 is, is Genesis 2. Uh, in Genesis 2, the, at the beginning of uh, Genesis 2, we have the seventh day. So uh, everyone's familiar with uh, Genesis 1. God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. And he doesn't rest because he's tired, He doesn't even rest because he's necessarily done with all forms of work. He rests from creation. God ceases from working to create. He rests from creating. That's that's layer one. Layer two gets back to the Old Testament people of Israel in the wilderness. But in order to understand that, we have to remember that after Genesis 2, we have Genesis 3 in the fall of of human beings, and God begins to begin his work of redemption through Abraham. He promises Abraham land and children, and then through those children, blessing for the whole world is what he promises Abraham. And those promises are passed from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, and to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons, and through Joseph, they end up in Egypt. That's where the book of Genesis ends. And in uh, the book of Exodus, it picks up with God's people now hundreds of years later who have multiplied greatly. God has blessed them. But at the same time, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And the book of Exodus is about how God rescues them out of Egypt and takes them where? He's taking them to the land that God promised to Abraham. He's taking them to their inheritance through God's promises to Abraham. So he calls that the land It's the land of Canaan. He calls that their inheritance. But it's also interesting, as Moses writes Exodus and then through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they also refer refer to that place, the land, as God's rest. The land of Canaan is God's rest. We have God resting on the seventh day. We have the promised land for the people of Israel being called the place of God's rest the place where the people, God's people will go and, and find rest. Then there's layer three. Layer three comes 500 years after the, uh, the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. 500 years later, we have King David writing Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So David writes Psalm 95, and he's calling God's people to praise God. 
And he's also warning God's people not to be like the Israelites in the wilderness. He's, he's warning them that if they have hard, unbelieving hearts, they will not enter God's rest. What's really interesting about that, what is, is essential for understanding Hebrews 4, is that David is writing concerned that the people of God won't enter God's rest in the land. So the people of Israel in the, in the, in the wandering in the wilderness, they don't enter God's rest. They all die in the wilderness. But the ne- next generation, they get to go into the land. And then for 500 years, they're in the land. They struggle, uh, but, but they're in the land and, until 500 years later, David shows up. But apparently, God's people still have not experienced God's rest, the kind of rest he he had in mind, because David is still calling God's people to rest in Psalm 95. That's layer three, and layer four here is, is Hebrews. And in Hebrews four, the author of Hebrews is passing along the same warning as David in Psalm 95. He's saying, New Testament Christians, be careful. Heed the same warning that David warned the people back in Psalm 95. Be careful. Get some healthy fear here, lest you fail to enter God's rest. So, even here in Hebrews 4, God's people have still not fully realized God's rest. We have still not entered God's rest. But the thing that's different about Hebrews, the thing that's different here and, and, and in layer 4, trying to separate all this, is that for the first time we've begun to experience God's rest. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. So it has begun. And you read on. The rest that he's talking about is, this, is, this, is the rest that David was talking about in Psalm 95. And this, this rest has always been available to God's people by faith. So God started the rest in Genesis 2 with the completion of creation. That's where God's rest started, Genesis 2. The brightest hope of entering God's rest in the Old Testament was forsaken by the Israelites in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in God. They didn't believe God. And even once they were in the promised land, God's rest was never fully realized by Israel because David is still calling them the rest in Psalm 95. And God's rest still remains open today, according to the author of Hebrews. And it is still entered in the way that David is calling his people to, that the people of Israel were being called to, by faith. God's people enter God's rest by faith. But it's still available today. Look at verses 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author is saying that as long as it is today, God's offer of rest is still open. You can still enter God's rest. If you are living and breathing and listening to my voice right now, you can enter God's rest. That's good news. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day Later on. So here, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying if the people entered God's rest when they entered the promised land, way back in the book of Exodus, under Joshua's leadership, if Joshua would have taken them into the promised land, I guess not really Exodus, more like Deuteronomy, Joshua, if they would have entered God's rest under Joshua's leadership, rest, if, if rest merely came by stepping onto the soil of the land of Canaan, then Psalm 95 doesn't make any sense. 
If God's rest is merely getting to the soil of the land of Canaan, Psalm 95 makes no sense. But there is another day later on. You look at the end of, at the end of verse 8. There is another day later on, a day when the Holy Spirit is inspiring David to write psalms, David, Israel's king, to write psalms, and the people of God are still waiting to enter rest. So Joshua, who took over for Moses in the wilderness, Joshua did not lead God's people to rest, and therefore the offer to enter God's rest by faith still stands, and this is what we see as we read on, verses 9 and 10. So then, verses 9 and 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Two things in those two verses. It's reiterated again. Once again, a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. It is still open. And we also get a clue into how we enter God's rest by faith. This is maybe a good time to answer a question someone may or may not have. Why aren't we just in God's rest? Like if God wants us in his rest, why don't we, do, why don't we, just, why don't we just start there? We don't start in God's rest because we are, we are born outside of God's rest. We are born into a restless world. We are born sinners. We are born unclean. Uh, to put it the way Matt Chandler put it in Sunday school, you are not awesome. All human beings are connected, and our first parents sinned and rebelled against God and were separated from him as a result of their sin. And every single human being has been born into that same state ever since. Sinful, separated from God, and rebelling against God. And this is a miserable condition. This is a miserable condition. This, this leads to every single toil and sorrow that we experience. And this is not an easy thing to get out of. This is not a simple solution. You get the idea, <clears throat> listening to certain people with certain ideas, that this, there's, there's an easy way to solve our problems. But unfortunately, we're not just a couple of policies away from financial prosperity. Uh, we're not just a couple of administrations away from political stability. We're not just a couple of negotiations away from world peace. We're not a couple seminars away from self-improvement. We're not a couple diet changes away from supreme health. We're not a couple medical discoveries away from beating death. We're not just a couple of date nights away from a good marriage. We're not just a couple meditation sessions away from achieving inner peace. All these things can change. All those things can come about, and we will still have our primary and greatest problem, a hard heart that resists and rebels against our Creator. So even, those, even though those things, though, are not the solution, they do reveal something to us, and that what they reveal to us is restlessness. We restlessly search for meaning and identity and pleasure in anything we can find except God by, by nature. We, we, we long for rest, and we'll, we'll, we'll take it anywhere we can find it in anything except God, who, of course, is the only 
place or the only one who can grant true rest. As one theologian puts it, only one thing can satisfy the restlessness of the human soul, the rest of God. Look at verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So everyone in this room is doing at least one of two things, including myself. So figure out which one you are. You're probably both. You're either working in order to achieve God's acceptance. You're, you're either putting your, um, your, your hope in the fact that what you do will ultimately earn God's favor and get him to look at that more than he'll look at your failings. Or you are working in order to find meaning and pleasure in something other than God. Both those two things are completely futile efforts. Working to earn God's favor, you will, be, you will never stop working. You can never do enough works to make God pleased with you in light of the sin that's already in your past, and you can never actually do it perfectly enough. So that is a futile effort. That, that, is, that is a list of endless works. And on the other side of the coin... The, the, the pursuit of meaning and identity and pleasure and things other than God is an endless pursuit. You will be working forever and forever and forever seeking to find rest in that right. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our work for us. This is the good news of Christianity. This is the good news that the author refers to in the earlier verses Christ's work is perfect and complete enough to be accepted by God. Christ's work also satisfies God's anger for our rebellion. So no more works are necessary to enter God's rest. No more works are necessary. God's rest, just as it has always been, is entered by faith, by trusting in who God is and what God has done in Christ. We rest from our works and we trust in Christ's work in our place. We rest from our works and we are forgiven for our refusal to submit to a holy, loving God and find all of our satisfaction in Him. And you can do this today. In fact, the author of Hebrews would call you, using David's words, to do this today. Right now, you can admit to God that you are restless. You can recognize your sin. You can recognize your guilt. And you can put your trust in Christ right now. God is still in the business of changing hard hearts. Hard, unbelieving hearts. Look at verse 6. There still remains for some to enter. There still remains for some to enter God's rest. You think back to the, to the Old Testament. There was so much hope with Joshua. There was so much hope that Joshua was going to bring God's people into the land of Canaan that they would, they would, even at that point, finally enter God's rest. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, with Joshua and the people of Israel, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and going into Joshua, is that for the first time, here is a people gathered together with a royal destiny. Here, here is a people who have God's word, here is a people that have the living God dwelling in their presence for the first time since Eden. 
There's, there's actually a geographical space for the first time since Eden that's, that's flowing with milk and honey with promises that it's only going to get better. And for the first time, here's a people who have a leader named Joshua, which means salvation. There is, there is a lot of hope ending the book of Deuteronomy going into the book of Joshua, just as, just as you start to list out all, all they have going for them. And if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, but God does speak of another day later on. And although the first Joshua failed to lead God's people into God's rest, there was a second Joshua to come. There's a second Joshua, Yeshua, who is Jesus, the one who finally comes to give rest to the people of God. And you have Jesus saying some of the most ridiculous and wonderful things in the world. This is what we read before we sang. We have Jesus saying things like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how do we take the Sabbath seriously today? Now that the true Joshua has come and ushered in all the benefits of the new covenant, how do we take the Sabbath seriously? We, we stop our restless works and we rest in Christ's work. When? On Sundays? Or on Saturdays? In line with the traditional Jewish Sabbath? No, no, no. Verse 7. Today. Today. As, as long as it's today, we rest in Christ's work. So if we're going to go, if we're going to take God's rest seriously, we, we must fear the forsaking of God's rest. We must recognize the continual significance of God's rest, even into today. And finally, we must continue to strive to enter God's rest. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So once, once again, the comparison comes back here to, with, with, the, with the people of Israel in the wilderness. They failed to enter because of disobedience. What kind of disobedience? Doesn't that start to make it sound like it's not based on faith, it's based on whether you obey or not, right? That's, that's, that's actually not what it's pointing to, because look back up at Hebrews 3, just one chapter earlier, the last two verses of Hebrews 3, verses 18 and 19. He's summarizing his argument there, but he's saying, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? But then verse 19, here's the summary. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief was the biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not that we're not keeping the rules. The rules matter, but our biggest problem is that we're not good rule keepers. Our biggest problem comes from inside us, failing to trust God, failing to believe in God. So the author of Hebrews is, is, is calling New Testament Christians, strive to enter God's rest. What does that look like? Striving to enter God's rest is a fight of faith. It's, it's, not, it's not a rule-following system. Uh, the sort of disobedience that leads you away from God's rest is a disobedience that stems from not believing who God is and what he promised. I'll just say that one more time. The sort of disobedience that leads you away from God's rest is a disobedience that stems from not believing who God is and what he has promised. 
So this is a call to belief. This is a call to faith and trust in what God has revealed, what God has said to us, what God has said to call us to put our hope in, namely Jesus. But this is not easy. Don't think as though in the Old Testament, you know, this was hard. They had to obey this, you know, thing every, every seventh day. Well, we we're just called to faith. No, this, this is not, don't, don't get the wrong impression that Old Testament hard, New Testament easy. It, 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 the fight of faith is not easy when we're pre-programmed to work for our acceptance. It's not easy. It's not easy to trust that God is good when life is hard. It is hard. It's not easy to trust God's promises when your loved one is unexpectedly rushed to Sioux Falls with potentially life-threatening illness. It's not easy to trust that God is who he says he is when circumstances are undesirable we have to strive to put our faith in Christ. And that is what the Christian does. The Christian strives to enter rest. The Christian strives to actually rest in Christ's work, trusting that God's promises are true. There's a lot more to say about the fourth commandment, how it's embraced and, and lived out today and how that all comes together as, as uh, Scripture reveals that, but I'll just try to summarize it in this way. Uh, for, for the Old Testament people of God, entering God's rest was to take place by trusting God, demonstrated one way in obeying the Sabbath and keeping it holy. So the Old Testament people of God, entering God's rest was to take place by doing things like keeping the Sabbath or remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. For the New Testament people of God, for you and me, entering God's rest takes place by trusting God who has now revealed himself in, in Christ, the Christ who claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. So what comes to your mind when you think of rest? What came to your mind when we started with that at the beginning? What comes to your mind when you think of rest? What comes to your mind when you think of Sabbath? I hope that starting today and every day after today, what primarily comes to mind is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as, uh, as Augustine wrote and is well known, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, as sinners in a fallen world, that the deep tragedy of our existence is that we can work and work and work and work and never actually find rest. But God, we thank you for Christ who has provided the completed work so that we can have true rest. We rejoice that in your wonderful and divine wisdom, you grant a kind of rest that leads us to be able to do good works. You, you grant rest that leads us to obey commands, and, and they are not burdensome. You grant us rest that, that leads us to call others away from their own restless works and to trust in the work of Christ. 
Father, help us to cultivate a healthy fear, the kind of fear that leads us to faith in you. Help us to recognize the glorious significance of the rest that you still offer today in Christ. Help us to strive by grace to enter your rest, to put our hope in Christ. We acknowledge you are good in all things and through all things, and we look forward to, with great anticipation, the day when we will fully experience the rest you have for us. We long for your rest, and we look to Christ, for he alone can give us rest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.